0: All right, and we're live for the uh, playing to win installment number seventy four, and I'm back with my friend George Gammon. How you doing, brother?
1: Doing well, Rich. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's been a while, and I kind of took a break from doing this uh, podcast series. The last couple of months have been busy, so um, you know, with all the craziness in the economy and the, the FTX, you know, exchange recently collapsing, and a yep. lot of the stuff that I've sort of tripped across in your social media feed on YouTube, I thought it'd be fun to catch up and kind of do a. A cast together and share some of the stuff that you've been talking about to my audience and bring me up to speed as well. Cause I'm not, I'm not on this thing on a daily basis. So I thought it might be fun to do it this way. Yeah, so for sure. what have you been up to since we talked to you last time?
1: Oh, man, just creating content and trying to stay ahead of all the madness that we see in the world, not just uh, socially, but uh, more specifically from a standpoint of macroeconomics. I mean, to your point, about a year ago, I think we probably hit the, the peak in the, the crypto price point. Uh, with, with the, I thought it was a mania. And it doesn't mean that, that crypto is not a good idea long-term. I, I think that the crypto space will be very similar to the railroads in the 1800 and very similar to the dot-com uh, bubble that we saw in the late 1990s. And that is to say that it's a great technology and it definitely has a future, but whenever you see something brand new like that, everyone piles on, and it just turns into a massive, massive, massive bubble, and uh, and, that, and that's what you get. You you see you get a bunch of frauds, and like uh, whether it was Luna or Celsius or uh, you know FTX, we'll see how this all plays out here. But uh, it's very easy to do kind of shady business. And to make a lot of money when the tide is in. But it's like Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who is actually swimming naked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if the tide goes out and you're still wearing your swimming shorts, then you've got a good chance to be successful over the long term because it wipes out all of your competitors. And again, this is exactly what we saw at the railroads. We saw this in the dot-com bust. In fact, I would argue probably the best time to start a, a web-type business was back 2003 2004 2005 like two or three years after you see this massive bust Mm -hmm. so uh, I've been I was pretty critical about um, you know the hysteria that we saw because to me a year ago it was just so painfully obvious but now I'm actually probably on the other side of the boat saying Well, wait a minute. I I know that there's a lot of frauds out here and we're going to have to see how this plays out. We're definitely not at uh, a level where I would consider capitulation, but uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't some interesting things out there. And the lower the price goes uh, and the more frauds and the more bankruptcies bankruptcies we see, the more interested I get. And (laughs) I think that's probably key to being a contrarian indicator or a contrarian investor.
0: Do you think that the crypto bu- bubble's completely popped and we've let all of the extra air out of it or do you see No, because I haven't
1: seen capitulation yet. And it doesn't mean that that we're not at the bottom. It's just usually if you study financial history mm-hmm. when you see these types of, of bubbles, you've got to get to a point where th- like no but like everyone that was really gung ho about it is is just swearing it off. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, we never want anything to do with crypto for the rest of our lives. This was stupid. Anyone that gets involved is crazy. It's only going to go down from here. It's, it's going to go to a zero. And then you see the people like Michael Saylor, as an mm-hmm. example. I've always said that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I really like Bitcoin uh, to have a purchasing power outside of the commercial banking system. That That's the main reason I like it. But I say, for for me, knowing when to buy and sell is all about psychology. Uh, It's like Jim Rogers says, you've got to buy panic and sell hysteria. Mm -hmm. Uh, So waiting for that panic, you know, when does it come if it's an asset that you're bullish on long term? And this is applicable to oil, commodities, stocks, crypto, Bitcoin, gold. It it doesn't matter. It's just human psychology. And uh, so what I said is when I see Michael Saylor sell, is Bitcoin? I'll know that's the time to buy, right? Because <laughs> that will represent absolute capitulation. Another thing that I I thought would be kind of a a lead an indicator would be the Bitcoin conference. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think you've been to this down in in Florida, but I went in. What did I go? I, I it would have been twenty twenty one. Okay, I was at the Bitcoin conference and it was a, like a circus. I mean there were 15 20,000 people there. It was it was absolute madness. A lot of fun. But I I tell people, you know, follow how many people are actually attending the Bitcoin conference annually. And when you see that drop from 15,000 down to a 1,000, mm-hmm. that's when you start to get interested. Right? I see. And that's when you want to catch it for the next cycle up. But it always goes back to to just Jim Rogers, you know, he's my favorite investor. And if people can just ask themselves, okay, am I seeing absolute panic right now? Or am I selling, seeing absolute hysteria? And if you're not seeing one of those two things, then you usually just sit on the sidelines.
0: Okay, that's an interesting angle. Do you think that Bitcoin is the same as cryptocurrencies or is it uh, no. completely separate, no. it's just a commodity?
1: I, I, I do not, I think Bitcoin is definitely superior. Uh, to the other cryptocurrencies, uh, especially if you're talking about the just the jokes like Dogecoin or Shibu Inu or mm-hmm. you know something like that. Uh, I think that, that, that's pretty obvious. But I would argue that the Bitcoin community got caught up in the exact same type of mania that the uh, the community around Shibu Inu or GameStop or Dogecoin, uh, it, it was the same mentality, right? You got to buy it now. You got to get on the train because it's going to a million. And if you don't buy it now, have fun staying poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Bitcoin is significantly different. But unfortunately, back then, I think the community um, fell into the same trap. And I mean, you had people like Sailor coming out and said to mortgage your house, mortgage mm-hmm. your house to buy Bitcoin. And I and I went on several podcasts uh, back then when the interviewer would ask me, well, well, why not max out your credit card to buy Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, I, I, I would have nothing because that's such an insane question. Like, I, I wouldn't even know how to respond. So um, definitely the, the underlying asset, completely different. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings.
0: Yeah, maxing out your credit card to buy anything that's speculative is generally not a good idea ask me how i know as never a never one of the biggest debt settlement companies in canada it's like a lot of people show up with that problem
1: yeah oh yeah you yeah you've been on the other side of that yeah i forgot yeah. with your your past business
0: yeah yeah so i saw a lot of people uh not understanding the basics of the credit card machine um yeah crazy so what else is going on that you see happening you know aside from crypto i mean like Crypto will be interesting. I think we, I think you're correct. All the chart guys, you know, seem to be saying that we've got another drop, probably somewhere between eight to 12 K. Yeah. And I think in the past, historically, like December has been one of the worst months, you know, for crypto. So if it's going to happen, it'll probably happen in the next month. So I don't know. I mean, um, well, I, I don't start know with
1: macro, Rich. I, I start with macro, then I kind of go down from there. So if you look at the yield curve right now in the United mm-hmm. States with the treasury market, mm-hmm. you see that we just have this massive inversion. So in fact, I, I just did a, a whiteboard video on this this morning, where the one-month treasury, uh, the three-month treasury, is trading higher than the 10-year treasury and the 30-year treasury. And it gets even more extreme where the, the, we have the Fed funds rate here, which is the overnight rate that the Federal Reserve pays the banks for keeping their cash at the Fed. Right now, and that's an overnight rate. That's 3.9%. And we see the 10-year and the 30-year trading under 3.9%. To be precise, uh, when I looked at it this morning, the 10-year was trading at 368 So, And I, I I went back in my whiteboard video to 1955, And when you go back that far, if you look at the inversion between the one year and the 10 year, it predicted 100 percent of the recessions since we've had since 1955. And there was only one time that it got it wrong where it actually predicted a recession, but we didn't have one. And that was in 1965. But I'd like to point out that in 1965, the GDP went from 10.1 percent as far as GDP growth went from 10.1 percent all the way down to 0.8. Two, so a decrease in GDP of ten percent over the span of I don't know if it was like five or or six months, something mm-hmm. like that, after the uh, you saw the inversion. So this is one of the most powerful, probably the most powerful economic indicator we have in macroeconomics, and its its predictability is just second to none. And right now, it is screaming. That the united states is going to have a significant recession if not depression going into 2023 you know maybe in the middle maybe the end some you know the timing gets a little difficult uh, Mm -hmm. difficult there but whenever you see the curve inverted this uh this much it's 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 not a matter of if it's it's only a matter of when so why does that matter to people that are interested in crypto or gold or commodities or anything like that or real estate for that matter Mm -hmm. it's because when we go into a recession, you can just go back and look at March of 2020. Look what the stock market did. Go back to 2008, 2009. Look at what this, look at what assets uh, that the price does. It goes down because it's risk off, risk off, risk off. Everyone wants to just buy dollars, go into cash, or they wanna buy bonds, which is why you get the inversion in the curve because all these large pools of money are trying to hedge their book. They're trying to hedge their portfolio. By buying bonds because they think that the economy is going to get so bad that they're going to either lose on their bull positions or uh, they're using it as a capital gain opportunity because they think the Fed's going to pivot as a result of the bad economic news. And then they're going to get a capital appreciation because there's an inverse correlation between the price of the bond and the actual interest rate. So, uh, my point there is that if you're asking me, you know, are we at the bottom of crypto, I would say probably not looking at the yield curve because if it is right, like it has been since 1955, then we're in for a lot more pain uh, before we see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Does that also apply to the stock market?
1: Yes, absolutely. It applies to the stock market and it, it applies to the price of gold. Now, mm. uh, a lot of people and have seen that gold has really gone up because the inflation rate in the United States has started to tick down. We call that disinflation. And so the market is predicting that the Fed is going to uh, what we call pivot. They're going to stop raising rates uh, a lot sooner than the market had expected. So then you get that interest rate differential between the the Fed's overnight rate and maybe some of the other central banks, which could be negative for the dollar, which means gold rips higher. But but, but, let's go back and look at what happened to gold uh, in March of 2020 when the market freezes, the credit markets freeze, and people have to sell anything on their balance sheet that's liquid. That's usually gold. So you see the price absolutely plummet. The exact same thing happened in 2008 when Lehman Brothers went bust. You would think that the price of gold would skyrocket. No, it absolutely tanked. But that was your your buying opportunity because the way the central planners... And the authoritarians and the central bankers, the way they, quote unquote, fix the problem is by doing all of these programs like quantitative easing. And uh, or if you want to call it money printing, we'll use that term loosely. And that's uh, always very, very bullish for the price of gold. So it's pretty much any asset that you can think of, whether it's commodities, stocks, precious metals, real estate, crypto, everything other than just cold hard cash and uh in treasuries and that's why for my own portfolio i've got a lot more dry powder uh today than i I usually have as far as an overall percentage
0: Mm. so okay well i mean you talked about cash is what you like a lot of right now is there anything on the markets that you're eyeing uh right now or buying i mean it sounds like you're basically saying stay away from just about everything right now but is there anything that you like
1: yeah i'm actually buying short-term t-bills So Mm. when we look at the maturities there, I've been buying six month and one year T-bills in my own portfolio because long term, uh, I'm a a huge fan of commodities. I think we're going into an energy crisis due to everything the World Economic Forum is doing, you know, the global elite, the IMF, Mm. uh, the Klaus Schwab types, you know, in regards to climate change. So I think we're going to have a huge shortage in energy, which is going to make the price skyrocket. But this is over the next 10 to 15 years. Usually super cycles play out uh, uh, over a decade. And we've seen the price of commodities that I really like long-term, such as coal and copper, run significantly over the last, call it two years, really since March of 2020. So I, I don't want to chase the price. Again, we want to buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive. And they're not cheap right now. So what having that long-term view what I want to do in the interim, in the short term, is buy short-term T-bills these six and one year because the interest rate is very high relative to where I think the interest rate is going to be in 2023 if the bond market and the inversion in the yield curve is correct.
0: What so is the if we um, kinda, yield currently on those T-bills?
1: It's, I'm looking at my board here, the uh, The one year, just to give you an example, is at 4.7. Okay. 4.7%. So what happens if you were to buy these T-bills today, let's go over a worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is if nothing happens to the price of commodities or whatever asset you want to buy with this dry powder, and you just hold them to maturity. And then at the end, you just get 100% of your principal back plus 4.7%. That That's the absolute worst case scenario. And now in the United States, you can say, George, well, you're still losing purchasing power because the rate of inflation is higher than that. And I completely get it. I agree. That's kind of the cost you pay for having that liquidity. But if you're in Canada, or if you're in Europe, the UK, Australia, or where I'm in, Colombia, where your expenses are denominated in another currency, it might not matter if the dollar continues to appreciate against the, um, the currency that your expenses are denominated in. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you don't as 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 a Canadian citizen, as an example, you don't care what the inflation rate in the United States is, because if you buy a one year T-bill and that's denominated in dollars at four point seven percent. And during that time frame, let's say the inflation rate in Canada is five percent, but the dollar appreciates 10 percent against the Canadian dollar. You, you got a double whammy right there. Mm-hmm. You See, whereas if your expenses are denominated in dollars, then it's a a little bit of a disadvantage because you're you're, you're definitely going to lose that purchasing power because 4.7% isn't keeping up with the rate of inflation. But for me, it's just like kind of buying an insurance policy. Now, let's look at what happens if it works out and if the yield curve is correct. Well, then the Fed is going to drop rates, let's say back down to zero. Well, if they drop rates back down to zero because of an economic recession, what's going to happen to the yield on the one-year treasury? That's going to go straight down. So let's just say that the yield goes from 4% down to 1%. Well, that's a capital gain for the person that owns that treasury. Because again, there's an inverse relationship between the price and the interest rate. So interest rate goes down, price goes up. So then you have more purchasing power than you had before. And if you want to sell it, say, after six months. So let's just say as a result of this recession the demand side plummets for commodities. So that's going to bring down the price of all the stuff that I want to buy to a level that I would consider quote unquote cheap. So you kind of get a double whammy there. Instead of just keeping your your cash in the checking account, making let's say 50 basis points, you keep your dry powder in a T-bill where if everything plays out the way you think it's going to play out, you're going to get a capital gain on the dry powder, which will allow you to buy more of the cheap commodities that you want to hold over the next decade. That's kind of my current game plan.
0: I think you made reference last time we talked to, uh, uranium. Um, oh yeah. You know, that as an uranium. industry is, yeah. Love Are it. you still hot on that or?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let's go through all of the mistakes that have been made in the European union, uh, in relationship to, uh, to Putin, Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that they do is they come out and they do all these sanctions. Well, how did that work out for them? Right. I would argue that those sanctions impacted the European Union far more negatively Agreed. than it impacted Russia. But you see that the price of energy just absolutely skyrockets to the point, unfortunately, where this winter, a lot of people over there might not be able to afford uh, you know, just heating their home, which is, by the way, is another problem that we have here in the United States with diesel up in the, the Northeast as a result of these crazy policies towards uh, Russia, which, um, you know, I'm no fan of Russia, but I am a fan of doing something to them that will hurt us less than <laughs> it hurts them. <laughs> you know, kind of common sense and a cost benefit analysis. But anyway, you know, let's go back to 1980. And we had the green, or maybe it was 78. That's when the Green Party started in Germany and their battle cry one of their battle cries back then rich was to get rid of nuclear we got to get rid of nuclear got to get rid of nuclear so long in the 1990s along comes this politician who's of course machiavellian and he mm-hmm. sees an opportunity there he doesn't give a he doesn't care about the polar bears or the, you know the the temperature in the ocean he just sees this as an opportunity to usurp power and control his name is gerhard schroeder so Gerhard Schroeder comes along. And he says, OK, Green Party, I'll go ahead and pander to you guys. If you if we if if and at the time he wasn't part of the Green Party, but he kind of combined them and he said, OK, if I get elected, then I'm going to go ahead and get rid of all this dirty, horrible, horrible uh, nuclear energy. So he does that in the early 2000s. He gets rid of the nuclear energy. But what does he replace it with? He replaces it with a pipeline going straight to Russia for nat gas called Nord Stream. Maybe you've heard of it. Right. Yeah. So in an effort to pander to his constituents, they take a source of, of, of a very, very clean energy and they replace it with something that's far more detrimental to the environment. And they make themselves completely dependent uh, upon Russian nat gas and therefore giving Putin all the leverage in the world. And so fast forward to today, when they go ahead and implement these sanctions, now, what do they transit? Cause they don't have the net gas. So what are they having to transition to? Well, now they're having to use more coal, coal, rich coal than they ever have in the last, let's say 30 or 40 years. And there, some people are literally having to go out and cut down timber wood, like in their backyard mm-hmm. just to heat their house, which has probably an, a bigger impact on the environment than coal does. So my point here is that all these central planners and authoritarians and all these people, <clears throat> excuse me, that are really Malthusians at heart. I call them the Malthusian cult, and that's the World Economic Forum, that's the the EU, the UN, uh, the IMF, and all of their cronies. And unfortunately, they've got a lot of influence over corporate America as well. Mm. But these people truly believe that there are too many human beings on the planet Earth relative to the amount of scarce resources we have. So they have two objectives. One is to make sure that people use less energy, and they're doing a very good job of that right now in Europe. And number two is to decrease the population, like Bill Gates always talks about. But, you know, they won't say, well, we want to actually kill people, but they'll say, well, we want to reduce the population uh, growth or we want to reduce the birth rate, something Mm -hmm. like that. So these, and these are their two objectives going all the way back to when Klaus started the World Economic Forum in 1971, right? And uh, the Club of Rome in 1968, you guys can can do all the research. I've done a lot of whiteboard videos on this. But the point here is that climate change is just a Trojan horse. It's just a way to, to allow them to use a, a marketing tool, right, to really package what their true objectives are, because using less energy, therefore lowering the standard of living for the entire globe, or just killing, you know, half the people, half the population, you know, call it four billion people, that that doesn't really sell. So you you got you got to use some marketing strategy there and package it a different way. So my point is, we see this climate change narrative, and I'm all for clean air. I want to be very very clear, but what I'm saying is, the people pushing this narrative. Most of them, especially at the top, they don't care about clean air. They only care about those two objectives, usurping power and control. Right. So
0: what do you think is e- in it for them? Because I always like to ask that, that question when it comes to these ideas, like what's in it for these conglomerates to reduce and eliminate more of the population?
1: Uh, there there's several things there. First and foremost, it's their it's their religion. They truly believe they're doing good. So I think if you and I sat down with Klaus and had a couple beers, I I don't think he would come out and say, you know, ha, 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 ha. I just, I love murdering people. I think he would, (laughs) exactly, (laughs) right? Exactly. I I think he would say, listen, uh, the fact of the matter is that Thomas Malthus was right. That we have, if we have exponential population growth, in a world with limited resources, at some point, that has to bring down the standard of living for all the people in the world. Because energy is the economy. People have to realize that. Mm. You can, you can uh, look at a chart of our energy use globally, and it tracks perfectly with GDP growth and the global population. So as if we have access to more and more energy, if we're able to use more energy, that's going to increase the standard of living for the people in aggregate total. So if we have access to less energy because the population is growing exponentially and the energy, the amount of energy you have access to flatlines, the only thing that can happen is the standard of living coming down. So Klaus would say we don't want that to happen. So in order to prevent that, unfortunately, we've got to make some hard decisions. And a hard decision is we've got to create an equilibrium between the population and the environment in which we live and the amount of resources that we have access to. And in order to do that, you've got to reduce uh, the energy use in the rich countries, and you've got to reduce the population in the poor countries. And why would he say that? Because the poor countries are the ones that they really have to focus on because they're the ones that go from... First of all, right now, they're using a lot less energy than we are in the West, right? And if you've ever been to like Ecuador or something like that, you know what I'm talking about. They're just, they're living in a, you know, a brick kind of hut thing here and uh, they're riding around on a bicycle. But Mm -hmm. what happens is as their standard or as their GDP grows, then they use more and more energy because they go from riding a bicycle to riding a scooter. And then they go from riding a scooter to driving a little car. And then they go to driving a truck. And then they're, what they eat changes as well. They go from just eating rice and then they start eating more and more protein. Well, protein requires a lot of energy. And so the, 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 the Klaus types, they see that and they say, okay, well, we can't, we understand that human beings are hardwired to always want something better for themselves and for their children and for the generations to come. So we can't prevent them from going from a bicycle to a moped, that ain't going to happen. So what we have to do is we just have to lower the population in those areas that have those types of opportunity, or, or that you know basically uh, everyone is going to want that opportunity. So we just have to decrease the population in aggregate total. Now I think they'd say that you know maybe after two beers, Klaus would say, "Okay, well we want to do that by just discouraging." Population growth, just like the one-child policy in China, as an example. So we just want to, you know, promote uh, birth control, or we want to promote the idea that uh, people should just have one child or two children or whatever. But I think after about four or five beers, then you it it would turn a little darker as far as the conversation, and it would go from well, we need to promote uh, having fewer children to we need to enforce this. From a top-down standpoint, and then maybe after ten beers, you'd get to the the Thanos plan, which mm. is what I call it. And if you saw that movie, uh, exactly, you got it. You got it. So,
0: so, I mean, here's what's really interesting about that. I know Justin Trudeau is one of Klaus Schwab's best buddies.
1: Oh, he's a disciple. He, he's yeah. like a Klaus Schwab mini-me.
0: Yeah, and there was um, there was an article or a. Uh, or a conversation piece that came out from Max Bernier who's like the main opposition who doesn't even have a seat in parliament but he's he's the guy saying you know we need we we need a little more freedom less rules lower taxes you know get out of my life stay out of my pockets and get the hell out of here sort of thing and he and Trudeau's been talking about increasing the immigration rates into Canada which kind of contrasts you know the whole notion of lowering population, population density, energy usage and all that, right? And I think the number was doubling if I'm not mistaken. So why double your immigration rates into Canada if you're drunk on the Klaus Schwab Kool-Aid to lower the population, reduce population, lower energy consumption, when that in theory would be the opposite? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I do. I I think number one, it's part of this woke narrative, so a lot of times that conflicts with the overall main objectives of the global elite. But also, too, if you look at what truly does lower population, it's when people become richer. So, and Bill Gates will tell you that it's when people become healthier. That that's complete BS. He's just trying to sell you, uh, you know, some oceanfront property in Arizona just Mm. to push his his narrative. But when when people get richer, they do have fewer kids. And so that could be it when they're trying to bring all these people from maybe poorer countries into the richer countries, assuming that their standard of living will increase. Therefore, they'll reproduce a lot less.
0: That's an interesting theory. Okay. So take them out of an environment where they'd normally have four, four or five kids, put them in one, where well, they might have one or two.
1: Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but to put them into an environment where they will vote for you so you can continually stay in power. Well, there's probably a lot of uh, of reasons why they may push that narrative mm. or that agenda.
0: It doesn't seem to be slowing down, though, does it? No,
1: it, it, it's uh, well, it, I mean, like are, the craziness. Yeah, yeah. What I always say is that every night I go to bed and I think to myself, well, the good news is it can't get any crazier. and then i wake up the next morning and read the news (laughs) you know i I, you know it's funny
0: i um you know i did this reaction piece to jordan peterson's three-part series on the daily wire about encouraging guys to marry um you if you haven't seen it you should go watch it on the unplugged alpha podcast it's it's from like two weeks ago and because i subscribed to the daily wire I, i figured you know i'd check out what was on it and i saw this one that caught my eye which was um what is a woman by Matt Walsh? And I don't know, that was a 90 minute train wreck. Like by the end of it, I, you know, by the time I was done, I just looked at my, my girl and i was like i don't really belong in this world like i don't agree with any of this that's not me i'm not like i don't i'm not not in my head here it's just i I can totally relate rich you know totally relate it's like where are we going here man like is this really what's becoming so common and every time you know i look around it's like well that's batshit crazy and there's more of this batshit crazy stuff over here and it's like am i the only one that's still sane you know, that, you know, that whole code in the matrix sort of thing. Um, you were uh, talking in a few videos in the past month on your YouTube channel. If you guys haven't subscribed to George Gammon, do so. Uh, he has two channels, George Gammon and another one called The Rebel Capitalist. He also run, runs a live event. So definitely check him out if you don't know about him. But you were talking about the psychotic plans of these global elites. Can you, yeah. can you dive into that a little bit more and why that's such a huge risk to us in the economy right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about a lot of their psychotic plans earlier. But uh, from a standpoint of macro, the gal at the UN, her name is uh, Rebecca Greenspan. I'm not mistaken. I know that last name is correct because I remember it was the same as Alan Greenspan.
0: What is her position there?
1: She is uh, the head of the economic department. I I can't remember exactly what her title is, but she's the one that uh, kind of goes out and tells the media what their economic
0: policies or prescriptions are. Oh, so she's providing the sound bites to media outlets. then.
1: Yeah. And she's the one that gets interviewed and all those things. Got it. Okay. And so her, her counterpart over at the IMF is a gal called uh, Christina or it's like Georgieva or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can tell that these two gals that are probably the most powerful over in Europe and Christine Lagarde, at the IMF, or at uh, she was at the IMF, now she's uh, the head of the ECB, and Janet Yellen, they're all kind of, uh, I think they all get the same script. So when you hear what they're all saying, if they're saying the same thing, I think it kind of gives you an edge to know what they will be pushing within the next year. And then you can assess the probabilities of it coming to fruition. And then you can see if the mainstream media really starts picking up on this. And if the Federal Reserve starts picking up on this as well. As an example, back in 2019, when I first started my YouTube channel, I was talking about a central bank digital currency. Mm -hmm. And Rich, everybody was telling me that I was a conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. Oh, George, you're fear-mongering, you're Alex Jones, you're a tinfoil hatter, blah, 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 blah. Well, now, and, and it, I'm sure this isn't a surprise to any of your your viewers, that now the Federal Reserve has come right out. And not only are they talking about a central bank they're digital currency, they, they're testing one. That's yeah. right. They've got a pilot program right now, a 12-week program, as we speak, where they're testing a central bank digital currency.
0: How are they so, testing it? Can you Can you dive into that? Because I haven't got the details. And can you explain why that's such a big risk to us?
1: Yeah, let, let let me get there in one moment. Okay. Uh, but but one of the, the the key crazy things that they're scripting now, which we may see come out in the future, what what Janet Yellen and Rebecca and Christina and Christine Lagarde, what they're talking about, is capping interest rates with the central banks. So I, I think that the central bank in Canada, correct me if I'm wrong, has been increasing interest rates yeah. along with the ECB, and everyone knows that the Federal Reserve is doing this. And their position is, hey, if you continue to do this, you're going to create unemployment or further unemployment. You're going to increase the unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair to the poor and middle class, blah, 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 blah. So what we need to do is we need to increase interest rates just to a point where it starts to negatively impact the unemployment rate. And then what we need to do, if we still have inflation, is we need to send out checks. For people to afford the higher prices for gas, food, shelter, etc. Now, for those of your viewers who are rather sophisticated, they'll say, well, that's complete insanity, because that's only going to exacerbate the problem of consumer price inflation. But they've got a a solution there, quote unquote. I think what they're going to come out with and what they've talked about is price controls. So they're going to say, okay, Fed, you can only take rates up to, let's say 5%. And once we see the unemployment rate notch up from 3.7, let's say, to 4.2, now all of a sudden, we've got to drop rates back down to, let's say, 4% to make sure that we're not damaging the poor and middle class. And then if inflation is still at, let's say, 5, 6, 7, 8%, then we need to start sending out stimmy checks again. And then we need to cap inflation because we know that that's produced exclusively by just greedy capitalists. We know that's the reason for inflation. So Mm -hmm. let's just stick it to the greedy capitalists that are trying to stick it to the average Joe and Jane, and we'll implement price controls. So I I just want to mention that because I think that your community should kind of just take a mental note there and start trying to notice this narrative uh, being talked about more and more and more throughout the mainstream media. Because if they do that, they'll be able to understand what the probabilities are that this comes to fruition. and if it does, you'll definitely need to understand that to position your portfolio uh, in a way that's going to make sure that you're you're not only you know surviving the storm uh, but hopefully you're, you're thriving through all these insane policies. Now, going back to the central bank digital currency question, uh, this is really interesting. Most people understand that if there is a central bank digital currency, that means they're going to be able to monitor every single transaction you do. You meaning every business, every Mm -hmm. person, and the entire population, the entire society. So this is Orwellian on steroids. I I mean, this is a, a dystopian nightmare, to say the least. But that's not where it ends. What most people don't understand is a central bank digital currency means that your dollars or your Canadian dollars, whatever you have in your checking account, which is currently a liability of your local bank, let's say down here in the United States, it's Wells Fargo or Bank of America, that would become a liability of the Federal Reserve. In other words, your checking account would move from Bank of America over to the Federal Reserve just like jp morgan has an account with the fed we call it a, a, we call it bank reserves a reserve mm-hmm. account or goldman sachs something like that so why does this matter because there's a big key distinction between the federal reserve and your local bank your local bank doesn't have an infinite balance sheet they actually are a for-profit business so they have to worry about a PL, right if they they can go bust they can be insolvent Now the Federal Reserve doesn't have that problem. Uh, They have an infinite balance sheet. They can have negative equity. It it doesn't matter. They're not going to go out of business. So what this means, if everyone has an account with the Fed, it means that they can start issuing credit based on narrative, not based on merit. See right now, if you go out and apply for a loan for a house, let's say a million bucks. Well, they're going to look at your credit score. They're basically going to look at your ability to pay the loan back. Mm-hmm. But I think in the future, especially if we move to this central bank digital currency and they start to ban cash, they're going to say, well, I mean, we need to do, what? what's the word Trudeau would use? Well, we need to employ equity or inclusion or, uh, you know, fair. Social
0: credit score is where you're going.
1: Yeah, we, we need to have a social credit score. And what we need to do. They won't say it. It, well, but basically we need to extend credit to those disadvantaged groups. Right. Uh, you know, so whether it's uh, African-Americans or- They're already starting to
0: do that right now with banks from what I've seen, where banks are offering discounted rates or lower rates to people in certain groups that, you know, uh, you know, sort of go with the woke narrative, if you know what yeah, I mean.
1: And I think they're going to do it to a greater degree in the future, especially if they get the central bank digital currency, because they don't have to worry about being paid back you know in fact just the other day i did a video that the bank of canada or the is it the royal bank of canada your central bank up there just mm. hosted a conference on, on basically being woke and the in the federal reserve down here tweeted about it saying oh yeah isn't this awesome that the bank of of canada is doing this whole conference to try to figure out how central banks can be more woke and be and have more inclusion and diversity and equity so if you combine that woke narrative with a central bank digital currency, what that means is if you're a straight white guy, uh, then you might get that mortgage, but it's going to be at ten percent. And if you're, you're a a, white guy. if you're a trans Native American, uh, <laughs> a furry, or whatever it is, sure. you know, then your interest rate is going to be at one percent. And uh, this is what one of the many, many reasons that I think a central bank digital currency is so dangerous above and beyond just the, the 1984 big brother element of it.
0: You know, what's been interesting about all this over the last few years, especially in Canada, is the Trudeau government's slowly been disarming Canadians. I don't know if you know about this, but they've banned handguns. Mm. And they're also talking about uh, banning semi-automatic long guns. So we have three categories of guns here. We have restricted, which is really only for security and licensed uh, you know, police forces. Um, we have non-restricted and prohibited, right? You know, prohibited are like the full automatic, uh, M 16s that, you know, the military would use, you know, for example, but they're licensed to carry it, but they're talking about taking away long guns that are even semi-automatic, um, which is the next step. So I'm not sure really what the, you know, what the country's going to look like in five to 10 years time, but it's not going in a very nice direction. a very free direction. And CBDCs have been talked about a lot over here. Um, They're dangerous. They're dangerous because they can program the money. They can program, you know, where you can spend it, how long the money's uh, on your balance sheet for, you know, forcing you to spend it within a week or two. And not only that,
1: Rich, now they're coming out with these credit cards and these are being pushed by the World Economic Forum, by the way, that, that, that show your carbon footprint monthly. Yeah. So I think where, where they're going with this is to, to your point, that programmable money, they'll give you a set allocation of carbon credits throughout the month. So let's say that it's the, the 25th of the month, there's five days left and you've eaten too many steaks mm-hmm. or you have filled yeah. up your truck too many times or your McLaren. Yeah. You know, it only gets six miles to the gallon or whatever. Yeah. Well, now you can't, You you literally cannot buy any more gas. You can't buy any more stake. Or only they might buy sell it to you, but at a tax rate like that. that's
0: much higher, right?
1: Or yeah, or you'd have to pay like triple the price or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, and And how would they do that? Because that money is programmable and they can make it do anything they want based on their algorithm or your
0: spending habits. There's really no way to circumvent this either, right? Because they're forcing cash. you to use a cash. That,
1: that's why I always say that it, it doesn't seem like a big deal banning cash. Like, oh, yeah. who cares? No one ever uses it. But cash, when you gold, really think it coin. through, that's the only thing that stands between our freedom and liberty and the central planners and authoritarians.
0: But it, like, I mean, the way they're going, the vast majority of the population who all, you know, is drunk on the wokeness and wants to protect the environment and save the baby seals and make sure the icebergs aren't melting they're probably going to line up to go and get these like carbon credit credit cards oh yeah so they can virtue signal on social media i guarantee within the next year you'll see circles on fucking facebook with i got my carbon credit credit card i'm saving the environment you know here's my number over here um There's going to be a lot of people that will rush to that. I believe, anyway. I don't know. What do you think? They're the useful idiots. I I couldn't agree more.
1: I I could not agree more. And I think what will make it even more impactful is not only this virtue signaling element that you're referring to, but also I think this is how they're going to distribute universal basic income. Yeah, they'll say they'll say in order to get the the UBI, you know, the thousand bucks a month, you've got to go to your phone. And you've got to download the the Fed app, right? Mm. And that Fed app automatically gives you that account at the Fed. So they're creating bank reserves, putting them in your account and letting you spend them as legal tender. But those bank, but but those, uh, you know, uh, tokens that you're getting, bank reserves, let's just say that they're called Fed coin, right? That is the programmable money. And they're just going to use that to weed out all of the existing money and replace it. So 100% of it is programmable while at the same time banning cash. And then then and you're screwed and, and you're done.
0: Is there a potential catalyst that could reverse this? Is there something that could go wrong? Like what could go wrong with this, if anything? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, so here's the good news. The good news is we, the people, have the power to prevent all of this from happening. And I would use as an example the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. You know, Romania was one of the last strongholds there. And they had this guy, I can't recall his name, but he was just an extreme dictator. And he had been in power for two, three decades. And he was absolutely ruthless. He controlled the military. Obviously, you, you weren't allowed to own guns or anything like mm-hmm. that. He controlled the media. He controlled the police, everything. And so they started to protest because they wanted to, to be released from the stronghold of the, the Soviet Union. Because they saw all the other countries on the periphery doing the exact same thing. And they wanted democracy. You know, They wanted free market capitalism. So uh, what he would do whenever a protest would start up is he'd just literally shoot the people. Mm-hmm. Just go out there and bah, 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 you're dead. So everyone was just living in fear. But at a certain point, you had enough people to where they kind of achieved escape velocity from a standpoint that they couldn't kill everybody. So you had let's say 50 people go out to the street. Then all of a sudden, the next day it was ten thousand. And then the next day it was a hundred thousand. And then it got to the point where it was like five hundred thousand people that were all protesting in this in their main square there in the capital city. And he came out to address the entire crowd and they basically started to to boo him and whatnot, which was absolutely unheard of. Mm-hmm. Nine days later, the dude was dead. They, they they took him out back and just shot him. And mm-hmm. and they didn't have any guns. They didn't have the power of the military. They just had the power of, of large numbers, right? And that, that's what we have to remember as Americans, as as Canadians, as Australians, as people who value their freedom and liberty, that if we get pissed off enough, if we unite, we have all the leverage, We have all the power and the control. Another example I'll give you is back in the lockdowns. You know, Phoenix is a city that I'm very familiar with. And they're very Mm pro-gun. And uh, they have about 4 million people. Okay. Well, the government came in and and locked everyone in a cage, like they did in so many places, back in 2020. And uh, sure, there were people that were protesting. And almost every person, let's say, had a gun. Now, if a 1,000 guys, uh, you know, let's say alpha dudes, went out there with their guns, um, yeah, that that might make a dent, but within a day or two, the military would just completely wipe them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they would not have a, a chance against the police and the military, uh, especially the federal government got involved. But let's just assume that with no guns whatsoever, all 4 million people in Phoenix, when they instituted the lockdowns, just said, no, no, I'm not staying in my house. I'm going to go walk my dog. No, I'm not going to close my business. In fact, we're open nine to five today. All the teachers said no, we're not going to stop teaching the kids, and the parents said no, I'm not going to stop taking my kid to school. All four million people with no guns, just peacefully practicing civil uh, disobedience. Mm-hmm. You know, what would the government do? Nothing. There's nothing they could. They would have just said, okay. I guess we're not doing that. Let's move on to the next thing, right? So that's the good news. And that's what's so awesome about the internet. And it's so amazing about what you do and uh, other people that are, I would say in the freedom and liberty space. I know your main focus is on kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the sexual dynamics between men and women. But uh, I, I think, you you know, you're like me. My main thing is macroeconomics, but still the freedom and liberty message really seeps into everything that we do. And uh, that's what I think is, is that's what I'm really optimistic about.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not as optimistic as you in that regard, because I've, I mean, I live in Canada, so, it's, so I see it from a different angle. One, we don't have guns like you guys do. Um, the other thing too is, it looks like the people here are, you know, it's a whole like boiling the frog slowly, like it doesn't yeah. know it's being yeah. boiled sort of yeah. thing. I think yeah. they're dripping out the wokeness and the nonsense and the narratives and the CBDCs and all this sort of stuff and the banning of the guns. And the next thing that the government's doing right now, which is really interesting, I don't know if you heard about this bill um, in Parliament. I think it's called Bill C 11, but it's basically going to allow the government to control all streaming services. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. The internet in the past, censorship. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they've had control, you know, like over radio waves and television broadcasting in Canada in the past, but now they're. Trying to expand that to YouTube, Netflix, mm-hmm. and all these other programs, and they're trying to do it under the guise of, you know, we want to make sure Canadian content is, uh, you know, there, like it's got a representation, blah blah it's, blah. There's yeah, no free of speech. misinformation
1: and disinformation, hate and all, speech,
0: yeah. misogyny, you know, like all that sort of stuff, but. The underlying notion of it all is because people have looked at the code in this sort of matrix as well, too, is no, this is this is going to give the government full control mm. over information. So while we have the Internet today and we, and we have you know freedom of information today, there could be a time in the very near future in Canada. Anyway, I don't know when that's going to come to the States. It seems like the U.S. is a few years behind us where they are going to have a lot more control over the information that goes like, like it's gotten to the point where there's been some Canadian YouTubers that have um, lobbied against this bill in parliament. And I've had people reach out to me like, you know, is this something that you're interested in? Like you want to get involved? And I did this back in 2012 and it was a waste of time. So my view is I'm just going to let them do what they're going to do anyway. Cause that's what they do here. And I'll take a look at the legislation when it passes. And if it forces me to move out of Canada, then that's something that I'll have to consider at that time. If it, you know, if it's uh if it's an option. But um, yeah, I, I I think America is probably better positioned than Canada to deal with resisting, you know, the tyranny that's coming from these psychotic plans, as you called them. Um, we'll see where it unfolds. though, man, it's going to be interesting time over the next five to 10 years or so. Let me uh, drop a couple of these super chats on the screen and address them. Sam says, will a credit score be replaced by social credit score? What do you think about that? Yes. Easy question. I think it's going to blend the two together where it's like, I don't think your credit score is going to matter as much as your social credit score right now. What matters? I think they might just, the you
1: know, your, your credit score might impact your social score, yeah. but I think that's going to be what's most important.
0: Yeah. It's, it's certainly going to expand beyond that. Cause like right now, when you go to a bank and you try to get a mortgage or you want to borrow money, they're basically looking at your income. What are you going to collateralize it with? What does a house look like? You know, what's your appraised value, stuff like that. They don't really care about your opinions online, but it, but my take on it, because money doesn't really have any value. Like you're like, why are we paying taxes if they can print an unlimited supply of money? Is you know one of the regular arguments that you'll always hear. But the the whole social credit score will let them determine whether or not they want to give you something, or if they want to give preferential treatment to someone else yeah. because of their narrative. Um, and then Sam follows up and he says, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of bureaucrats in Moscow were drinking themselves to death while their wives were shopping in Western Europe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, one thing I'd like to remind your, your viewers who maybe might be on the fence about the whole misinformation, disinformation, saying, well, you know, maybe I can see some advantages there. Just ask yourself the question, when throughout history have the people that have pushed censorship been the good guys? The answer never. is never. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> so, so it's very safe to say that whatever group, I don't care if it's Trudeau, I don't care if it's an, a, you know a government department, I don't care if it's Klaus, whoever starts talking about the benefits of censorship and the evils of misinformation and disinformation, you should not just ignore them, but you should put them in the bucket of people that uh, you... That, that are evil themselves. you know I think that's a good litmus test right now that if uh, again, it doesn't matter who they are. Uh, if they start talking about that, especially if they're in government that about misinformation disinformation and using that as kind of a buzzword and uh, talking about the benefits of censorship, you've just got to initially assume they're evil until they prove you otherwise.
0: So there's a hearing now on the trucker's convoy, which we had here earlier this year. And, you know, the Trudeau Trudeau government and his cronies are all being examined on this. And it's come to light that, um, so we have a security agency here. It's called CSIS. It's very similar to the FBI and, you know, stuff like that. Um, Apparently, the government, um, regardless of what the security agency's laws say, uh, pass the Emergencies Act based on their opinions, not based on the law now. So the, the Liberal government's opinions now supersede law here in Canada, believe it or not. Jeez. Mm,
1: but, you, you know, looking at the silver lining there with, with, with Canadians, I, I know that you guys have been subjected just to an unbelievable amount of uh, draconian and Orwellian rules since uh, for a long time, and it's only getting worse. But I I would say that that's where the trucker movement started. So I think that's very encouraging as well. And I would also argue, Rich, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. Mm. If it wasn't for the invasion of Ukraine, I don't know that Trudeau would still be in office. And the reason I say that is because if you think about the timeline there, and I remember this well because I I was Mm. doing videos on it. That the, that the whole trucker issue was getting to a point, like a tipping point, where it was you know mainstream news, everybody was talking about it, and they had trucker movements that were starting in the United States and in Europe and in Australia and New Zealand and all these places, all kind of following it. their lead where people were standing up for freedom and liberty and, uh, and just their rights as an individual. And then like the very next week when this was coming to a climax and Trudeau was really scrambling around, you can imagine if you were him, you're looking at this and Holy cow, this is, this is not good here. And that's when he was like running away to the, his lake house and all that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Cause he said he got COVID or something. Yeah. And then sure enough, you've got uh, Russia invading Ukraine. And all of a sudden all of the trucker talk disappeared overnight. Well, it went from being the biggest news in the world to no one even mentioned it. Pro- and then, then Trudeau, of course, yeah. gets off the hook because now no one's talking about the truckers anymore.
0: Yeah, so so it was a distraction. But I mean, like here in Canada, there was very little media coverage about the truckers. Because, oh, really? Yeah, because the federal government funds a lot of mainstream media here.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, it yeah. was big news here. Yeah,
0: so anything with um, like, you know, the beer bug or any of the... You know the reality of guys like uh, Doctor Malone or McCullough or the yeah. conversation with Joe Rogan or any of that stuff was was com- was completely you know suppressed in the media here for the most wow. part. The same thing with the truckers. So we didn't get a, we didn't get much public coverage of it. And you know how most people are. You know they just sit there stare at the TV and whatever it tells them they just nod their head and say yes. You know yeah. this is a new thing that I have to pay attention to. But um I don't know. I, I mean, this guy's won several elections back to back and every time you know one comes up and i'm like oh yeah he's definitely going out in this one he gets voted in again right and, and it's like okay um this is clearly what canada wants you know these are what people want um you know the voting system here isn't as fragile as the one that you guys have where they can you know they can have like five, five six, ten 20 million immigrants you know mailing cards or they can you know duplicate cards or what you know whatever we've seen happen down in the states that they've covered but um I don't know man like this situation with uh Trudeau and what happened in Ukraine I think it was very very convenient from a world perspective I think probably you know the psychotic WF, WEF guys and all of those cronies probably played played a little bit of a part in distracting the world from what was happening in Canada mm-hmm. but they yeah. I mean they basically deployed enforcement in Ottawa and they and they made the truckers go home. They froze bank accounts, canceled insurance. They just made it very, very uncomfortable for them to be there. Um, you know, made their lives very difficult. They incarcerated people that they saw as leadership, um, you know, to make their lives difficult and sort of set an example to it.
1: But you got the gal in Alberta. <laughs> yeah. that's actually like apologizing and, and saying that something to the effect that all the people that were for the mandates Need to apologize to the unvaccinated because of the the trauma we put them through. Isn't there there's something like that going on?
0: Yeah, she's you know she's one of those Albertans. Like you know Alberta's kind of like Canada's Texas. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know they're kind of weird. Like they kind of flip flop sometimes, but for the most part, it's like Canada's Texas. Um, and I heard that she recently you know disavowed the W W E F. Didn't want to get involved with um, you know like their agendas. Was more interested in what's going on you know on home turf, which is. Which is interesting, but it's not enough. You know, there's not enough. Um, you know, provincial politics. Like the the Ontario Premier here is supposed to be a, a conservative, but he fully backed everything that Trudeau did with truckers' convoys, lockdowns, mass yeah, right. mandates, uh, you know, jabs, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, you know
1: who else is bad up there? Is that one uh, Hindu guy or whatever that's just thing. like
0: – is yeah. that his name? Yeah. I actually his... know Jack Meet Singh personally because when I was doing the lobbying for Bill 55 back in 2011 to 2013, I met with him several times, and like he lied to me flat out on on a number of occasions. Oh yeah.
1: Well, I've seen things that he's he's said or or put out on Twitter that are just utter nonsense. You know about inflation being the result yeah. of uh, the you know greedy capitalists and. Uh, he's just... a
0: smart guy though. Like like he's a smart dude. He's a c- seasoned lawyer. He's he's he's, he's very clever. But this is what these politicians and bureaucrats yeah. do. Like they're more concerned with the optics than the reality, and it's just. Yep. And I think the guy in the UK is, is.
1: I think the guy in the UK is cut from the same cloth. That new guy in the. UK. Oh yeah,
0: he's yeah he's a uh, puppet. He he is yeah. he is a a pawn on the chessboard, and I don't know who's running that chessboard, but but it's, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if the dots connect somewhere to our buddy Schwab and the others. Um, yeah. Let me throw a few more of these up. Hey, sure. George, uh, won't the economy implode at some point if the Fed has an inflated balance sheet? An infinite balance so sheet? Infinite balance sheet.
1: Yeah, but you, you've got to remember that the the Fed, to a certain degree, can backstop all the credit markets. So if this person, you know, how would the economy implode, let's say? Well, you could have a, a no bid on the, on the Treasury curve. You know, that that would be extremely detrimental. You could have the corporate bond market go no bid. Uh, Basically, what I'm talking about is credit markets. So if the Fed comes in and backstops that by saying, okay, well, if there's not a bid or if there's not a bid at a reasonable price, we'll come in and buy it from you, basically backstopping the entire credit market with their balance sheet. That could prevent a, a complete implosion. Now, that's not to say that it's a solution. Because that's just papering over the problem, and when we do finally have to pay the fiddler, uh, the the damage is going to be far greater, right? And we're going to have to pay a heavier price. We're just kicking the can down the road, but they do have some tools there uh, that they can use to maybe soften the impact. But what the bond market is telling us right now is that even though they have those tools, we're still going to see a significant recession in 2023. Although, if they didn't have those tools, I would argue that we wouldn't have a recession. We'd have an economic depression that would make the 1930s look like a picnic. Hmm.
0: Uh, Jim's got one here for you. Uh, Our national currency is being deliberately debauched to reset 300 trillion global debt via World War III concurrent with reducing... pop. You know, a war would be a lot more effective at reducing the population than what they're doing right now, wouldn't it?
1: Well, that's what Thomas Malthus argued originally. Uh, Rich, he had, I can't re- remember exactly what he said. He had like, uh, like two categories of population reduction. One was just voluntary, and he, uh, you know, like birth control and whatnot. He said mm. that's what, pe- and just morally, people should only have one child. And then the other was, he said, just as beneficial, and he was just as much of an advocate, and that was war, famine, and plague. So, yeah, I mean, he would sit there and literally argue the benefits of those three things for uh, humanity long term. That, yeah, we might have this World War II thing or, you know, back then, uh, whatever, you know, the Civil War, World War One, And we might have this black plague. We might have the Spanish flu. But mm-hmm. you got to look at the bright side here, Rich. That's going to reduce half the population and get us more to an equilibrium with with Mother Earth. And the amount of resources that we have at our disposal—again, the exact same argument that Thanos made in that uh, Avenger movie.
0: Um, there was an infographic somebody put together. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was—but it was a um, a chart going back as far back as recorded history, tracked wars, and we live in one of the most peaceful times uh, since World War II right now. Like, oh yeah, you know, traditionally in the past, like it was. It was so bizarre because it was like this bar graph, sorry, it was a, um, uh, it was a two-axis graph, um, the amount of wars and then time, and everything prior to like 1945, it was peppered with big dots everywhere. Since 1945, there's been very, very few wars. Um, Yeah, but
1: what else has happened since 1945, Rich? You got it. Let's, let's think that one through. So mm-hmm. remember when I was talking about, uh, if you look at a chart of energy use, GDP and population growth, pretty much since 1950, it's gone parabolic mm-hmm. straight up, uh, you know, we discovered not, not only the, all the uses for oil and then the, the natural gas, and then, uh, you know, we've made that far more efficient, which has allowed that not only the population to grow, but the standard of living to increase. And I would argue that one of the main reasons that you're seeing a reduction in violence or a reduction in war Mm -hmm. is because you have less civil unrest because the standard of living has gone up. But let's think about what the global elite want to do. They want to bring down the use of energy. Okay, well, what is that going to do to the standard of living if we know that energy is the economy? It's going to bring back down the standard of living, which makes social unrest increase which I would argue will most likely lead to more wars in the future, uh, not fewer wars.
0: So it's entirely possible that they're that they're doing this to set the groundwork for the next world war.
1: Yeah, and another thing that I'd point out to your audience, Rich, along those lines is look at what has happened as a result against these just bizarre sanctions against Russia. Assuming mm-hmm. that you want to defeat Russia and you don't want to defeat your own population, right? Uh, it the, the the net result has been in the rich countries like Europe, they're using a lot less energy. Okay, what was their number one objective? Use less energy, and mm-hmm. then what's a, a secondary effect? Well, natural gas the price goes parabolic. Okay, what's the main input into fertilizer? That would I be sure natural that.
0: gas. Wasn't right? nice.
1: So then you have less furniture or, or uh, furniture fertilizer. fertilizer. And if you do have it, you have it at a much higher price. Okay, well, what does that do to food availability in the poorer countries? It reduces it. So you have food shortages, which does what to the population? It decreases population growth. So, again, I'm not saying that this is deliberate, but I'm saying let's just connect some dots here, for heaven's sakes. And if they're explicit objectives— are less energy and lower population. And all of these policies that they're implementing right now just so happen to achieve those objectives. Maybe, just maybe, uh, these policies are intentional, not to defeat Russia, but to go back to this Malthusian cult.
0: Let me ask you this question. I mean, Joe Biden's clearly not in charge. like He just Walks around aimlessly, yeah, right? Like, you know, the motor's running, but nobody's really behind the wheel, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, or
1: when he's shaking hands with like nobody. And yeah.
0: so. <laughs> so, who's running the, who's running the 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 most influential and powerful country in the world right now?
1: Great question. I, I think it's just the, you know, the establishment. Let's say, but what is the establishment?
0: Yeah, if you can define. I think that. it's
1: just really the influence. From the groups that we've been talking about, uh, the Davos types, uh, these people that uh, you know have these the Great Reset agenda, if you will, the people that are on board, whether it's the the global elite, the do-gooders, or the useful idiots, it's this whole constituency, and I think that is uh, what's really the driving force behind pretty much all politics in the United States, but definitely the Democratic Party and whoever the, the puppeteer is that's pulling the strings with Joe Biden. That would be my guess. And then I think they're heavily influenced by uh, corporate America, uh, especially the pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw that play out in 2020 and 2021. And we still see that today when, you know, when Fauci gets up there and regardless of any evidence that we have, they'll still come out there and say the number one thing that you can do. In fact, his crony, the other day, the guy that works for him or works in his department or something, says that's the whole reason that you've got two arms, So <laughs> you can get a, a, a cervasus sickness shot or a beer bug shot in this arm and all your boosters, and in this arm, you can get your flu shot. That's why God gave you two arms. That's yeah. literally what he said on national TV.
0: I know, I know. Uh, George, when's the next Rebel Capitalist Live?
1: It's going to be May, uh, the beginning of May in Orlando. And we're going to be announcing that in about a week or two.
0: Cool. And uh, would you get into commercial real estate in the U.S. right now?
1: No. no just Blank. because of the yield curve. I think okay. you're going to have a better opportunity in uh, in a couple of years.
0: years. Um, what if you're not in service? How can you survive war? I think, well, let's just re- rephrase this because we should probably wind down the cast and sort of wrap it up. but. Given everything that we've talked about, what would you recommend people do with this knowledge now? Like, what are some solutions to these problems? Because I like actionable sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that it, it depends on the resources that you have access to, mm. and it depends on your personal situation. Like, as an example, I'm a single guy, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids, and uh, I've got a, a significant amount of resources. So for me, in my opinion, the best thing I can do is just be completely mobile and just plan things out in six month segments, because six months from now I have no idea what the world is going to look like. You know, a lot of people, I'm in Medellin, Colombia right now. I've spent a lot of time here since 2014 and they say, well, is Colombia a good place to move, you know, and bring my family and to do, Mm -hmm. you know, set up shop for the next 10 years. I have no idea. I like it now. I might not like it in six months. You know, they just uh, elected a socialist here as well, Petro. Mm-hmm. So, and the world is changing so quickly that I think it's impossible to determine where you're going to be able to maximize your freedom and liberty in five years or, or maybe even, uh, you know, a year or two. So, if you're someone like me, I think it's wise just to set up shop Like our buddy, Andrew Henderson says right Mm -hmm. now, wherever it is that you're treated best based on your priorities, but then remain very flexible and just kind of take it in six month segments. Now, if you're a normal person that let's say is making 75 grand a year and you're, uh, you know, you got a wife and kids and you just can't just move to uh, Dubai or something like that, then I think you need to really be focused on community. You need to really set up a network of like-minded individuals that are in your neighborhood, in your town, in your city, and you really need to get on the same page and maybe meet up once or or twice a month and say, hey, if so-and-so happens, you know, let's set up a game plan here. Uh, Let's have a plan B. And, you know, what's our downside there? I'd also, uh, I would definitely have six months of food. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And then I don't want to go too much into the portfolio, but uh, I I would I would like to see a 10 percent allocation to gold just as an insurance policy. Um, And then, you know what I did with my sister when we were going into this uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine and she lives in Dallas, by the way, Mm -hmm. and this is what I'd suggest to your audience as well, is think through the probabilities of X, Y, Z event that you're concerned about. And then say, okay, if this played out, you know, what would I do? So going back to this story of my sister, uh, I called her and I said, listen, this could get really serious. You know, Russia just invaded Ukraine; they got six thousand nu- uh, nuclear uh, nuclear missiles pointed at us. I said, at least you need to figure out where in uh, Mexico you would go because that's your your nearest border there, and you know, get your SUV jam it packed full of dried food or whatever, you know, can sustain you for a couple months and then just figure out on a map, you know, where do you want to go in Mexico and how would you get there if you had to go there in a, a in a moment's notice? And then she just had that plan B. Now you could say, George, that's paranoid and that's this, okay, fine. But what, what's your downside there? And I think that we will also see a lot more civil and social unrest in the United States and maybe in Canada, like we saw in 2020, And therefore, to have some sort of bug out plan, I think would be prudent as well. As an example there, my buddy in the United States in Phoenix, he bought a little RV that he keeps in his driveway. So if there's uh, riots like we did see in Scottsdale, that he can just hop in his RV and he can shoot up to the mountains for a week or two Mm -hmm. and just wait till the, the, the smoke clears and then decide what he wants to do from there. So he's protecting his family and the people who he really cares about. So those are probably the the first steps that I'd take. And But the the main thing is just to be aware. Make sure that you're not whistling by the graveyard and make sure that you just don't have your head buried in the sand.
0: When it comes to being aware, where would you recommend people get their information from?
1: Oh, I'd I'd watch Ron Paul's channel. Mm -hmm. I'd watch your channel. Uh, If people want to watch the Rebel Capitalist channel, I talk about this stuff uh, pretty much every single day. And then from there, I'm sure you'll find other content creators who are just as good, if not better uh, than we are. Tom Woods is another podcast, uh, the Tom Woods show Mm -hmm. that I really enjoy. But just get out there online and uh, look for people that are preaching the message of freedom, liberty and free market capitalism and uh, just see the ones that you relate to the most and just, uh, you know, listen to what they say.
0: And one last question for you, Uh, what do you think of um, Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson?
1: Love it. Suggest it to everybody.
0: Okay. There there you have it, guys. Um, If you want to get more from George Gammon, check him out on YouTube and on Twitter, Uh, George Gammon on YouTube, Rebel Capitalist on YouTube, Twitter, George Gammon. You'll be able to find him pretty easily if you just uh, search for it in the search bar. Uh, Rich and George is one of the best ever productions on the YouTube network. People are finally waking up to reality. You're welcome. Yes. (laughs) So we'll get together again soon, my friend. Um, I really like having you on as a guest and, you know, having these conversations. It's been a blast. If you guys enjoyed it, leave a a thumbs up and a comment below. And uh, yeah, make sure you check out George for a little bit more. Yeah. Thanks for having me.